The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. When uh, Rich and I started this local assembly over 22 years ago, we decided to call it Berean Bible Church. We did that because we founded the church not on the principle of eschatology. You know, we didn't start this church because we found a new eschatology. We, we started this church because we wanted the freedom to search the scriptures and teach what we saw without, you know, creeds hindering us or without church traditions hindering us. We wanted to be Bereans. So that's why we named it this. It comes from Acts 17. I'm sure you all know this, 10 and 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scripture daily to see if these things were so. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible puts verse 11. It says, Now the people here were of nobler character than the ones in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. They eagerly welcomed the message. That's where it starts. You hear the message, they're welcoming it. And then it says, checking the Tanakh every day to see if the thing Shaul was saying were true. So the Bereans, they, they welcomed the message that Paul was bringing them, but then they sat down with their Tanakh and examined it. Is what he is saying line up with Scripture? This, they wanted to know, is this, is this true what he's saying? Now, I continually ask you to be Bereans and search the Scripture to see if what I'm saying is true. This morning is no exception. You know, I'm aware that we all come to a text with bias. We all have paradigms that we filter a text through. So it isn't easy just to let a text speak and not add our own baggage to it. The text we're about to look at, I think, is critical to our Christian walk. But if it's misunderstood, I believe it can actually be harmful to your Christian walk. Now, as we examine this text, I ask that you eagerly accept the message that I'm bringing and then examine the Scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. Our prayer when studying a text should always be that the Spirit would show us the truth of His Word no matter how badly it damages our current theology. Would you agree with that? See, theology is what we develop from the Scripture. So, if you find in Scriptures that your theology doesn't line up, well, don't try to rearrange the Scriptures, okay? Change your theology, all right? And I am constantly coming to this text in prayer, asking God, you know, if I'm not seeing this right, please show me. You know, I don't have an axe to grind. I'm not trying to say, you know, I have a view and I want to find a verse to fit it. You know, I'm trying to let the Scriptures... You know, teach. And, and I emphasize this because this text is seen two different ways. All right? I see it in the minority way. The majority sees it a different way. All right? <laughs> I see this text as about fellowship. I see the audience as believers. That's very important. Look at 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, the, these things in this text, now I, I realize we're jumping ahead a little bit to get into five, but the these things is not referring to the whole epistle. 
It's referring to verses 6 through 12. And if you go look at 6 through 12 and read them, you'll understand that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about these verses are dealing with believing. And the words to you who believe in the name of the Son of God do not mean to those of you who believe. The Greek here means to you believers. I'm writing to you believers. That's it. It's not like, oh, to those of you, in other words, I want the ones of you who really do believe to listen to this. No, he's writing to believers. Nowhere in this epistle does John ever hint that he thinks his readers aren't Christians. And the view that I hold, that this book is written to believers telling them how to have fellowship with Yahweh, is not the commonly held view of this book. Or let's say, not the majority held view of this book. Okay? John Stott understands the audience to be mixed, believers and unbelievers. Therefore, his state, he stated, purpose of the book, he says, is to destroy the false assurance of the counterfeit as well as to confirm the right assurance of the genuine. See, many see this little epistle about being about assurance of salvation. This is how you know you're saved. And if that really is the theme of this book, you're going to leave here really confused today, okay? Not knowing if you're really saved at all. And that's where the damage comes in this text. If you're saying this is written to believers about assurance, and you're like, well, I'm not loving my brothers as myself. I must not be a Christian. That's the damage. Now, John MacArthur holds the same view as Stott, and he says this. We're actually looking at a text that is verse 3 through verse 6, a very important text, one that deals with the issue, how do you know you're a Christian? That's not, you know, again, if this is where you're, you think this book is talking about, you're going to be really questioning your salvation. Something I never see in Scripture asking you to do. Never. Speaking about assurance in this text, MacArthur writes this, there's a cognitive element that comes right out of the promises of Scripture. And second, so he, MacArthur sees three different levels or three different parts to assurance. Secondly, there's the subjective element of assurance that comes by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And there's a third element. That's what I'll call the behavioral assurance that comes because of how we live our lives. In other words, I got assurance because I am so good at living the Christian life that I look at my life and I think, man, I've got to be a Christian. Look how good I got this. You feel that way sometimes, don't you? Feel you just got this nailed, right? He says, in a sense, it starts in the mind, it moves to the emotions, senses, and then it goes to the life. He goes on to say this, but there's a third element of assurance, and this element of assurance takes us to our text. There is no assurance of salvation without sanctification. So what he's saying is, as a young Christian, you can never really know you're saved. You're just doubting it. Because unless you have sanctification, and how many of you started out, you got saved, and all of a sudden, man, you were just like, I got this nailed. Nobody? Well, according to MacArthur, there's no assurance without sanctification. So unless you got it together, sanctification, another word, holiness, you know, he says, it isn't enough to know in your minds that the Bible promises that if you put trust in Christ, you're going to be saved. In other words, it's not enough just to trust what the Bible says. That's what he's saying right there, people. It isn't enough to know in your mind that the Bible promises 
that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be saved. That's what the Bible says, right? Believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and what? You'll be saved. The Bible says it. But that's not a very good test of assurance, he says. You've got you to do right, okay? And you can have a measure of assurance. In other words, that you know, living right will help you a little bit. Or, I mean, believing the Scripture will help you a little bit. But then there's that sort of, that sort of minimal, okay? That sort of entry-level assurance. Full assurance is connected with sanctification. People, this is so messed up, okay? This is why BBN took MacArthur off the air. Because they felt he was damaging Christians because he was making them think they weren't even Christians. So what's he saying? And we get a little bit of assurance of salvation because the Bible says if we believe, we'll have eternal life. So we get a little bit from the Bible. But full assurance comes from your life. So you get more assurance from your works than you do from the Word of God. Wow. And sadly, this book is used today to teach that a Christian's assurance of eternal life rests, at least in part, upon his or her good works subsequent to regeneration. John Piper writes this, Something had raised the issue of assurance of salvation in the church that John was writing to. It runs throughout the letter. He sees the same thing. He says it's about assurance. Now, the lordship view that Stott, MacArthur, Piper hold to teach that assurance comes from looking at your life. That's how you know you're a Christian. Holy living, your works. Martin Luther said this, For certainty does not come to me from any kind of reflection on myself and on my state. On the contrary, it comes solely through hearing the Word, solely because I cling to the Word and its promises. Amen. Martin Luther, that's what... God says if I believe, I'll be saved. I believe God. Not look at my life and say, well, I'm doing pretty wonderful. Calvin said this, from one's conscience, from one's work, conscience feels more fear and consternation than assurance. Do you understand what he's saying there? He said, this is if you're honest with yourself and you look at your life and say, this is how I know I'm saved, that's going to make you terrified, not comfortable. Okay, oh, buddy, I'm in trouble, okay? John Calvin taught that assurance was of the essence of faith. In other words, if you trusted, you have assurance because God said. That's it. Now, if good works are the basis of assurance, then the believer's eyes are distracted from the sufficiency of Christ and His work to meet our eternal needs. His eyes are focused on Himself. Our assurance is to be based upon God's Word, His promise that He would give eternal life to all who believe. It doesn't come from works. It comes from faith. Trusting God. Now the section we begin this morning, 2, 3 through 11, contains three claims to intimate knowledge of God expressed by the Greek particles, whoever says. At the beginning of verse 4, we see this. Whoever says, we see it in verse 6. Whoever says, we see it in 9. Whoever says. Now, as with the three conditional clauses beginning with if we say in the previous section, remember verse 6, if we say, verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say, these are how we know he's talking about the opponents. All right? This is his clue here. They're followed, these uh, statements are followed by the author's evaluation of the claims and their implications. Now, 
Colin Krauss writes this. He says, in 1, 6 through 2, 2, the author dealt with the claims made by the cessationists. That's what Krauss calls those people who have left, uh, the enemies that he's dealing with in this text. The cessationists, because they left. They left, and we'll see that later. Now, they went out from us because they were not of us. To have fellowship with God while still walking in darkness, while claiming not to have sinned. In 2, 3 through 11, he continues to deal with the claims of the cessationists, but here he focuses upon the claim they make to know God while not keeping his commandments. All right, so each of these statements reflects directly or indirectly on what the author believed the cessationists falsely claim, and it's followed either by a direct rebuttal or a counterstatement. So let's look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now this verse is often taken as a way of knowing whether or not you're really saved. This is how you know you're saved. Do you know that you're a Christian because you keep His commandments? Is that how we know that? And if so, I'd ask you this. What commandments do you keep? All of them? For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay, so let me ask you, how are you doing with this command of loving one another? That's the command, all right? So we know, we know we're good because we keep the command, and the command is love one another. Now before you answer, let me just try to clarify a little, because Paul tells us a little bit about love here. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient and kind. That deals with human beings, okay? He's not talking about you know, patient in a situation. He's patient with people. Macrothrumio is the Greek word here. In other words, you got a long fuse, Okay? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says it does not insist on its own way. We could say this. Love is not selfish. This means the loving person is willing to forego their own comfort their own preferences, their own schedule, their own desires for the benefit of the person loved. So do you know that you're a Christian because of your love for others? That's where your confidence rests? I certainly hope not, okay? If you think that is, we're going to be talking to your spouse or someone who knows your, your kids, all right? The view that this verse is to be taken as a way of knowing whether or not you're really saved could certainly cause a believer to doubt their salvation. I mean, if you understand, okay, this is how we know we know Him. We keep His commandments. And you're like, I'm not doing so well. I must not be a Christian. Well, then where do you go? What do you do next? If you don't think you're saved. I know. I'll believe. Wait a minute. I did that. At the Baptist church, you know what you do? Come down to the altar again, Okay. And the song they play is I keep falling in love with him over and over, you know, because you keep coming every week because you're just, you're frustrated because you just don't think, you know, I'm not living up to it. This view flies directly in the face of all Johannian theology, according to which we are saved by believing in Christ. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, that's where it starts. You hear the gospel, right? You hear it? And believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's it. That's the Gospel. Okay, You hear the Word of God, you hear the Gospel, you believe it, 
And people say, well, you don't really know if you believe it or not. I know the things I believe and don't believe, and so do you. But they've made belief into something that you don't even know what it is anymore. You know, So you don't know if you believed or not. Did you believe with your head or your heart? That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Do you, can you believe with your blood-pumping muscle? You believe with your mind. Okay, that's the only thing you do believe in. All right? And when you do believe, you get eternal life. Look at He doesn't come into judgment because He's passed from death to life. Eternal life is by grace through faith and works that have nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with assurance. Now the test suggested by 1 John 2.3 is not of the saving knowledge of God, but is of the experiential knowledge of God. Now to get this wrong is to completely misread this epistle. By this we know that we know Him. And here at the beginning is the Greek word kai. It's important for understanding the argument. See, after discussing the three claims of the opponents in verse 6, 8, and 10 of chapter 1, and putting forward three counterclaims in 7, 9, and 2, 1, he is now returning to the theme introduced in verse 5 of God is light. Okay? And so he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Now, what does he mean by knowing him? Well, in 1 John, the verb to know, genosko is the Greek here, is used in a number of different contexts where knowing has various shades of meaning. In our text, John uses know in the Hebrew sense of personal relationship. Okay? I think you understand that. God says, Israel only have I known. What do you mean? Didn't know about all the other nations, right? God didn't know about them. I thought he was omniscient. No, Israel only have a love, you know. Adam knew Eve, and they had children. What, what do you mean he knew her? Hey, Eve, I recognize you. I hope so. There weren't a lot of other women around at the time. He had an intimate relationship with her. And that's the Hebrew concept. All right? It involves fellowship. Knowing God involves fellowship. Remember, that's what this is about. It involves walking in the light. It involves being in Him. It involves abiding in Him. Listen. These are all parallel concepts. Okay? They all refer to an intimate relationship with God. Whether he's talking about fellowship, being in Him, knowing Him, being in the light, abiding in Him. They're all synonyms. Now here's the interesting thing. Almost everybody agrees with that. These are all synonyms. But they don't agree on what they're synonyms for. Okay? Alright, we'll see that in a moment. But they're synonyms... For fellowship, because that's what the theme of this message is all about. For John, loving obedience is a natural result of fellowship with God. He's talking about our communion here, not our union. Our union is permanent, it is unchangeable once we come to faith in Christ, but our communion fluctuates. The Greek here reads like this. By this we may know that we have known Him, perfect tense, something done in the past, because we are now keeping His commandments, present tense. The present willingness to keep His commandments, John is saying, is a sign of knowing Him. It's a sign of being in fellowship. How do you know you're in fellowship? just want to keep the Lord's commandments. I want to do what He wants me to do. Now John MacArthur writes this. How do you know you really know Him? Whether it's walking in the light, Being in fellowship or knowing Him, those three phrases are synonymous. See? Almost everybody believes this. Now, here's where the train leaves the tracks, all right? 
They all refer to the same thing, and that is salvation. All this is about salvation, all right? I'm going to prove to you in a little bit that that is not true, that that cannot be true, all right? So hang on to that thought. As I've said many times, this epistle is written to believers. It's telling them how to fellowship with God. Why would John tell believers how to be saved? He wrote a gospel for that. He just said, hey, go read the gospel, okay, if you're confused on that, because I'm writing to those you know, who know God, all right? All believers know God to some extent, if you're a believer. Uh, John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that you will know you, all right? You know him in, this, in that sense. However, some know him more intimately than others do, and you understand that, right? I mean, you've been around believers. There's some that are like, oh, ho-hum about Christianity. You know, they're kind of lukewarm, but there's others that are really serious and really excited about the Lord. Yeshua said this to Thomas. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Thomas knew Christ as Messiah, but he didn't know him to the extent that he should have. If you had known me, you don't, Thomas. Sometimes a person who has been married for a long time, and then they get a divorce, you'll often hear them say about their spouse, I really never knew them. You know, because you just feel like, I thought I knew that person. All of a sudden, I didn't know them at all. Obviously, they knew each other in one sense, but their knowledge of one another wasn't complete, wasn't intimate. And the more they did get to know, they're like, oh, I don't really like this, okay? John's point was that our personal experiential knowledge of God will affect the way we live. And the way we live, obediently or disobediently, will reveal how well we really know God, Okay? We've talked in the past about the fact that the opponents of John that he's dealing with, they're docetics of some kind, all right? They were the forerunners of the later Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism, you know, everybody argues Gnosticism didn't come about till later. That's true. Full-blown Gnosticism didn't, but it started somewhere, okay? And I think the seeds are seen here. Uh, they claimed that they were special elect beings. The thing about no, the Gnostics, they claim special knowledge, we have knowledge that nobody else has. And knowledge was a, intrinsic to their vocabulary. They were in the know. They had the secret knowledge. Uh, I think remnants of the Gnostic mentality is found in the modern New Age movement. It's found in modern psychology. It even shows up in places like the Masons. They have secret knowledge. Nobody else has. They claim to know God in a way that the ordinary run-of-the-mill Christian just doesn't know. And Paul's saying no. I mean, John's saying no, that's not it. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. All right, now I'm going to emphasize this here, but just for your amusement, I guess. There's a lot of discussion among the scholars. Who is the Him here? Is it Yeshua? Is it God the Father? That's my point. Who cares? Okay, they're both Yahweh. They're all members of the Trinity. So why do you want to spill so much ink arguing over who it is? It doesn't matter who it is. You know, whether it's the Son, whether it's the Father, they're one. I mean, that's so why, why argue about it? But they do. So John says, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Alright, this is a third class conditional sentence. It means potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If we as believers don't keep His commandments, John says 
we have not come to know Him. Now, the word keep here is a translation of the Greek word tereo. It means to keep watch upon, to guard protectively. The Greek uh, scholar, Alford, says this in his lexicon. He said, the word means to guard or watch or keep as a case of something precious. It's in the present subjunctive, which means it's continual. There's a continual sense in which you exercise a guardianship of the commandments because you consider them precious. In other words, the Word of God is so important to you that you keep it. You protect it. You guard it. You don't want to violate it. Now, what does Lazarus mean by his commandments? What's he talking about there? Well, some have suggested that he intends some sort of reference to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Are believers in Christ to live by the Ten Commandments? Not a trick question here. Well, okay, we're going to say yes, we're going to say no, we're going to bounce this all around, right? Okay, uh, let's look at it this way. Yeshua said this, Teacher, someone come to him, what's the great commandment of the law? You know, the Jews rank commandments by what's more important? Because the, you do the most important first, and then they trickle down, right? Okay, so it says, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great, this is the first commandment. That's number one. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Yeshua boiled the whole Tanakh down to two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. See, the Ten Commandments is simply a list of ways to demonstrate that you love God and your neighbor. If you love God, you won't make an idol. If you love God, you won't have other gods before Him. If you love God, you won't take His name in vain. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet. You're not going to kill him. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to commit adultery. All that's love, right? So that's what the Ten Commandments are about. Believers, the old covenant law has passed away, and it's gone. You know, so many Christians struggle. What, what parts do we keep? What parts? Listen, you don't need to worry about the old covenant, okay? We are under the law of Christ. Christ instituted nine of those Ten Commandments in the new covenant. You know which one he didn't reinstitute? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why didn't he say, why wasn't that important? Because he is the Sabbath, okay? He is our Sabbath rest. And so he didn't institute that, but he brought all the other nine in because, they, again, those commandments are about loving God and loving your brother. And guess what? We're still under the command to love God and love our brother. We don't have to be confused of what's permissible, what's not. We simply need to become familiar with the New Testament and the law of Christ. And we'll know how to live, Okay? John uses the Greek entole, translated as command, 14 times in 1 John. Sometimes it's found in the singular form, other times in plural form. When he uses the singular form, it always refers explicitly to Christ's command that his followers love one another. This is foremost in this epistle, that you love one another. So when he talks about commands, that's usually what he's talking about. The plural form occurs where there is no explicit reference to Yeshua's command. John never uses the word nomos, law for, the law, for the rule of Christian obedience. This word is reserved for the Mosaic law, and there's no indication anywhere in 1 John that the author is concerned about his readers failing to keep the Mosaic law. He's not worried about that, okay? Now, in the Great Commission, Yeshua said to his disciples, he says, you go into all the world and teach them to observe the law of Moses. Did he say that? No. He said, they're to teach them all that he 
had commanded them. Teach them the law of Christ. It's the precepts of Christ that were in view here rather than the law of Moses. All right? All right, now we get to one of his whoever says verses in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is a textual marker for John's diatribe format. This is one of the several assertions the false teachers were making. This statement is found in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. The false teachers were claiming to know God, but they were separating knowing God from holy living. And he says they don't know Him. They're lying. But does not keep His commandments. This is a present active participle which speaks of habitual lifestyle action. They're not living the Christian life. The behavior of the cessationist is depicted as ongoing disobedience to God's command. We see here that knowing God and keeping His commandments are linked. you got to get that. These things are linked. John states that keeping His command is one of the ways we know that we know Him. Obedience. John says that anyone who says they know Him while not keeping His commandments, they're a liar and the truth is not Him. That's not nice. Calling people liars. We'd get in trouble for doing that. But here when he says he's a liar, that's synonymous with the truth is not in him. He's a liar. He doesn't know the truth. This is simply the same thing we saw in one, chapter 1 where he says the truth is not in him in verse 8 and his word is not in us in verse 10. Now some say that this essentially brands the opponents as unbelievers. They're unbelievers. They don't have the truth. Well, and they would refer to uh, John 14, 6, where Yeshua says, I'm the truth. They say, they don't have Yeshua, they don't have the truth. That's... No, that's not what he's talking about here. He is simply saying, they are a liar and the truth is not in them. He's not saying they're not Christians. He's saying the truth is not controlling their lives. They're lying. They're not being controlled by the truth of God. So you can't have fellowship with Christ while disobeying His commands. That works in our world, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a spouse or if you're a child or whatever and you got certain rules you know you live by or you know they're not written down, hopefully you don't have them inscribed you know, on the walls of your house. Wife, thou shalt not, you know, but you know what pleases one another, and when you don't do what the other expects, or what do you get? Fellowship? No strife. You get misery, okay? And that's not how it's supposed to be, you know. You want fellowship? You do what pleases the other person. You work towards that end. That's how you get that. All right? He says in verse 5, Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this when we know that we are in him. This is a present active subjunctive which speaks of habitual lifestyle action. Is there a difference in meaning between commands in verse 4 and word here? Again, this is something that a lot of ink's been spilled over. Well, he uses commands in verse 4. He uses word here, and word means this, and command means this. They're talking about the same thing. I don't think there's any difference here. I don't think one's broader than the other. I don't think one, he's, he's just using them both. And if you want to see that, that he is using them interchangeably, go back and look at John 14. A lot of this stuff that he's pulling out here in 1 John comes from the upper room discourse. Very familiar, so we'll see that as we look at this. But look at uh, John 14, 21. He says, He who has my commands and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. It sounds like what John's saying here. And then he says in 14, 23, Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. 
Is he saying there's something different there? No, I don't think so. We should understand no difference between them. His commandment is a, and the word, they're the same thing. All right? I don't think he's trying to set up some kind of dichotomy here. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, perfected here is a perfect passive indicative which speaks of completed action. In John's Gospel, Yeshua speaks repeatedly of using this word, taleao, of completing the work that God gave him to do. So the love of God is completedness. Now, the term love of God is ambiguous here. Okay, the, the Revised Standard Version takes it to mean our love for God. The NIV takes it to mean God's love for us. The New American Standard and the ESV, you know, take it just ambiguously like it is here. They just say love of God. And scholars are divided between the two options, and it's hard for them to decide. Which is it? I see it this way. The love of God is perfected in the sense that the Christian has perceived it. He's responded to it. It's having its intended effect on our lives. It's changing our behavior. I think God's love for us is in view here rather than our love for Him. When a Christian moves beyond simply obeying God and desiring to please Him, God's love in him or her has the desired effect. It's being perfected. You know, we're not keeping the Word of God out of fear like, oh, God's going to smack us if we don't do this. It's like, you know, I want to please the Father. I want to do this because I know it pleases Him. Believers, love for Christ and obedience to His Word are in no way a test of saving faith. They're, the, they're not the test of a genuine Christian. Okay? Plenty of Christians don't keep His Word. All right? There are the genuine evidence of a heartfelt discipleship to Yeshua. It's this person, I want to live for Him. I want to honor Him. Let me ask you this. Can a believer not love Christ? I got yeses, I got noes. I got, I got this. Okay. I thought you should know this, okay? All right. Can a believer not love Christ? How do, you, how do you demonstrate love for Christ? Obedience. Can a believer not be obedient? Can a believer not love Christ? Okay. To answer that, let's go to the Yeshua's Upper Room Discourse where he'll give us the answer to this. Okay. He's talking to believers, Upper Room Discourse. I know he's talking to believers because he tells us this. He says in 15.3, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now who's the you? It's his disciples. Nobody else is there but his disciples in that room. And what does he mean by you're clean? Well, we can find that out if we jump back here um, clean. If you understand what he means by this, go back to, to understand what he means. But go back to chapter 13. In 13, 8 through 10, it's the foot washing thing. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Peter's such an awesome guy, isn't he? No, Lord, you're not doing that. Calls him Lord, never Lord. Yeshua answered him, if I don't wash you, you don't have any share, fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, well, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He's going overboard here. And Yeshua said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean. You already had a bath. You're clean. Watch. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Why does he say that? Because Judas was still meeting with him. Judas left shortly after this, okay? So he says, you're not all clean because Judas is there. In chapter 15, after Judas has gone, he simply says, already are you clean? So he's talking to his children, the clean ones. 
They were believers. Now with that in mind, notice what Yeshua says to them in the upper room. In verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Yeshua is talking to his children, they're believers. Now, with that in mind, he says, If you love me. This is a second class conditional sentence. Second class is contrary to fact. You could read it like this If you love me, which you don't, you would have rejoiced, which you are not. Okay? Robertson's word picture states this. If you love me is a second class condition with the imperfect active of agapao, referring to present time, implying that the disciples are not loving Jesus as they should. Did they love him? Shua said they didn't. He said, if you did, you'd rejoice. You're not rejoicing because you don't love him. But there is people, there is disciples. He said they're clean. So let me ask you again, can a believer, can you be a believer and not love Christ? Obviously, these people are believers, they don't love Christ. And again, if you connect the idea of loving Christ and keeping his commandments, because the problem today, people say, I love Christ. What do they mean? I feel some kind of way, you know, tingly, warm. I think about it, I just, warm honey poured all over me. I've heard in the testimony meeting, I said, ooh, that doesn't sound good, you know. And we base it on our emotions. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You know, if you love me, you'll feel really good about me. It's not what he says. If you love me, keep my commandments. So, I mean, that's a pretty hard and fast rule for us to tell people if, if people love Christ or not. Right? By this, we know that we are in him. What do we know? Well, this could be linked with what precedes whoever keeps my word. Or it could be linked with what follows, and thus pave the way for what's to come in verse 6. But it seems more likely to me that it refers back to the preceding material serving as a sort of inclusion with the use of 2.3, summing up the author's rebuttal to the first claim of the opponents in that section. And what follows in 2.6 is a second one of the opponents' claim. He starts it out with whoever says. All right. Now, the expression in him, this has caused a lot of people to have paroxysm because, see, they're in him. This is how we know we're in Him. That means we're Christians, right? Because, I mean, that's how Paul uses that. Well, listen, the expression in Him here, anato, is not equivalent to Paul's concept of being in Christ, in Christo. Paul uses that phrase to describe believers' relationship to Christ because of his or her justification. They're in Christ. They're believers. The unsaved are not in Christ. However, John used in Him the way Yeshua did and the upper room discourse. You've got to get that discourse to understand what John is saying here. In that discourse, he describes not all believers, but a group of believers who are in fellowship with Christ. See, John is not saying that this is how we know we're saved. He is saying this is how we know we are in fellowship with Him. In Him, in an intimate fellowship. Look at John 15, 1 and 2. Yeshua says, I'm the vine, true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Now the phrase in me is used 16 times in this gospel, and in each case, it refers to fellowship with Christ. 
So far as I know, that expression is never used of a non-Christian. A person in me is always a Christian. This section here on the vine and branches is not a parable, and that's important because parables, you know, you don't make everything walk on all fours. Details matter in the text like this, okay? All right, let's drop down to verse 6. He says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Now, this is the second of the three claims of the opponents as expressed by the phrase, whoever says this. And once more, we have a claim by the opponents that they abide in God. This is the first occurrence in 1 John of the word abide, but I hopefully you're familiar with this. This is the Greek term mano. It's a major theological term for Lazarus. Very big deal in the Gospel. It's used a total of 24 times in this letter, 40 times in the Gospel, 11 of them in John 15. Because that's what John 15 is about, abiding. All right. Whoever says he abides in him. This phrase, abides in him, means exactly, listen, the same thing as knowing him in verse 4. The same thing as fellowship in 1.6, all right? They are all one in the same experience, having fellowship in him, knowing him, abiding in him. It's all the same. They're synonymous for having a close, intimate relationship. Like I said, everybody agrees these are all synonymous. Can he be talking about salvation here? Well, let's move on. Whoever says he abides in him. John uses the present tense forms of the verbs to depict both the making of the claim, whoever says... They're continually saying, and what is being claimed? They abide. We're always abiding. Abiding goes back to the upper room discourse, to Yeshua's words about the vine and the branches. There Yeshua said, you are already clean to the words I've spoken to you. Now, we just talked about this, right? Remember that? Wasn't that long ago, right? <laughs> clean here refers to salvation. We saw that earlier, right? 13.10 makes that clear. They, were all, they weren't all clean because Judas was there. Now they are. He's talking to the believers. So, get this. Yeshua is talking to his children, believers. He tells them, those who are clean, those who have believed in him, he says, abide in me. That's a strong word in the original text. It's a tense that expresses a decisive command. It's in the active voice that is something we are expected to do. You're clean. You're believers. Abide in me. Now, if MacArthur and the rest of them are right, and abide is simply another word for salvation. Explain that to me. You're believers? Be a believer. What? What are you talking about? If it's the same thing, what is he telling these people? What is this command that he's giving them here? Be more believers? Be better believers? I don't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. He's saying, you're clean, saved. Be saved, abide in me. That doesn't make sense. Believers are commanded to abide in Christ because it's a, it's a, they're moving into an intimate relationship. You, you're clean. You trusted me. You're mine. You belong to me. Now here's what I want you to do. Abide in me like a branch. That branch just depends everything on this tree. Okay, That branch doesn't sit there and strain and groan to try to produce fruit. All it has to do is be connected. And that's all you have to do is abide in Him. They're commanded to abide. So how do we do it? How do we abide? Well, he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Here we go back to that commandment thing. You only abide when you keep his word and when you walk as he walked. 
John's point was that a believer who is abiding in God will obey God. Just as Yeshua abode in God, and God gave evidence to that by obeying the Father. John says that the person who abides ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So you say, I'm in fellowship with God. I know God. Do you walk like he walked? See, if you don't, you're, you're a liar. <laughs> and the truth is not in you. All right? Do you abide in him? Well, do you keep his commandments? What John is saying is we cannot claim to abide in him unless we behave like him. Oh. The behavior and conduct of the historical Yeshua is put forward here as the model for believers to emulate. This presupposes that the readers knew something about Yeshua's life. Most likely from the gospel. They'd read the gospel, they knew about Yeshua, so that means you can know all about him. Just read the gospels. See how he acts, see what he did, and you'll know. Yeshua told his disciples, I have given you an example you should do just as I've done. In this context, Yeshua was an example as he showed the disciples how they are to serve one another lovingly as he washed their feet. Complete humility. But the example that Yeshua gave them is not just humility, sacrificial service. He's taking care of a need. He's washing their feet. It's not some ceremony. They needed their feet washed. All right? Disciples were supposed to follow their teacher's example as are disciples. So, you know, if someone says, I'm a disciple of Yeshua, well, then they should look like Yeshua. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God. Boom. That's done. Drop the mic. Boom. Be imitators of God. Just do whatever God does. <laughs> this is a present imperative. It has the idea to become. Become imitators. You're not, it doesn't start out that way. You're to grow there. All right? They're to develop continually to be imitators of Yahweh. The Greek word for imitator here, mimites. It's the word we get our English word mimic. You're to mimic God. As a Christian, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Christ. Listen, if Christ is compassionate, we're to be compassionate. If He's loving, we're to be loving. We are to display Him in all we say and do. That's what John is saying here. They ought to walk the same way in which He walked. Now, commenting on 126, Luther says this, it's not Christ walking on the sea, but His ordinary walk that we're called to imitate. Okay? He's not calling on us to feed, you know, 5,000 with a couple little fish and some bread. None of that. He's calling on us to live the Christian life like he, he did. Johannian imitation means to follow as a disciple, a completely dedicated adherent to Christ. Now, John says that if we're abiding in Christ, we'll walk as He walks. So that's a simple test, okay? So if that means you're a Christian, then again, there's, we had a lot to fear, people, Okay? How many of you started out walking up? How many of you still not started out or still having trouble? Okay, hopefully you're making progress, because that's what it's all about. But he is the supreme, supreme example for living. He showed us how we should live in total dependence on the Father and in complete submission to his will. Look at Yeshua said, John 6:38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, that's obedience. He said, I'm only here to do what the Father wants me to do. That's what we should be able to say if we're saying we're abiding in Him. Whatever He tells me to do, that's what I'll do. How about John 8, 29? He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, 
For I always do those things that are pleasing to Him. How many can say that? Raise your hand. I always do those things pleasing to God. That's my whole life. That's all I want to do, right? (laughs) Okay, again, people, if you're saying this is how you know you're a Christian, you see what I'm saying, how this could be damaging this view? Because if, you, you're, if you've trusted Christ and you're trying to live for Him, but you fail continually like all of us do, you're struggling, and then someone comes along and says, if you don't live like Christ, if you're not abiding, if you're not keeping commandments, you're not a Christian. What's your option? Why would I try then? I mean, that's why would I... If you're telling me I'm not even a believer and I've trusted Him, I thought... I've done what I was supposed to do, but it obviously didn't take or didn't work. And what's the point? It's just frustrating. Because they're setting a standard that nobody's walking in. But they're trying to make you walk in. It's damaging, people. I always do those things that are pleasing to Him, He said. And then John says this. Well, you ought to walk as He walked. So you get the connection there, okay? So the person who abides in Christ should be able to say, I walk the same way He walked. I am always doing those things that please the Father. Okay? Look at uh, John 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. So how how does the Lord demonstrate His love to the Father? He says, I just feel really good about the Father. No. I do exactly as the Father commanded. Again, obedience. And I've run into people all the time. They tell me, I love God. And I say, no, you don't. And you want to get angry people angry real quick? Try it. You tell them they don't love God. And they're gonna, they're gonna, you're going to see some ugly stuff, okay? But I tell them, the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You are violating the commandments. If I know something specific, I bring it, you're violating the commands of God. You can't do that and say you love them. And then they can either ignore it or whatever. Yeshua obeyed the Father. That's the pattern. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. We're to walk as he walked. And listen, people, please understand this. This is something we cannot accomplish in our own strength. This is supernatural. But we have a supernatural power The Spirit is there. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit, to obey the Spirit, to trust the power of the Spirit. Paul said, I can do all things because I'm super Christian. No. Through Christ who gives me strength. It's a a matter of depending on Him. You can't do it yourself. You'll never make it, okay? You trust Him. It's impossible for a man to imitate Christ apart from the Spirit of God. To walk as Yeshua walked means that our lives should be characterized by daily obedience to God. Dependence upon God. Submission to God. And obedience to His will. Our overall aim in life will be to seek His kingdom and righteousness. We'll seek to please Him by our thoughts, our words, our deeds. While we will never perfectly walk as He walked, it should be our constant aim and effort to do so. It should be the goal. We're going to work on this goal to demonstrate this, okay? You're going to fail along the way. And that's the thing. If your failure means that you're not a Christian, that's going to frustrate you to death and you just give up. But if your failure means, you know, I'm not doing it, I've got to keep on trying. I've got to keep on going. 
Because I tell you people, we've talked about this before, the goal of this letter is fellowship. It's abiding in Him. It's knowing Him. When you move into that position where you're literally fellowshipping with Christ, the events around you don't matter. Okay? It don't, you're not all upset about every little thing that happens because whatever's happening, God's in control of. And you're in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on Him. Because He's in control. And that's, you know, and that's why Paul stresses this so much because Paul was a man who fellowshiped with God. He didn't care about what happened. Beat me. Do whip me. Do whatever you want to do. I'm okay. I'm cool with that. You know? I just want to love God. Wherever it takes me. And that's why it's so important, people. When we get in that position of fellowship, it's a blessed peace that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Now, Lord, I, I want to emphasize again, I pray that each and every one of us would be believers at this point. There are two views to this text. Let's examine it. Let's see if what I'm saying is true or what if the opponents are saying is true. Father, give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Help us to understand, Lord, that your love for us is so incredible. You're calling us to love you, to walk in a way that demonstrates our love for you. And help us, Lord, to understand that your commandments are not grievous. They're a blessing, they're a joy, they're for our good. Thank you, Lord, for your love to us. Amen.